Hello, and welcome to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. <clears throat> I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. And um, for those of you that are new to the podcast, um, a little bit real quickly and very briefly about what the program is about. Uh, Carl Jung, long time ago, and I'm going to just paraphrase this, um, the philosopher and the psychologist, said that the soul is that part of anything that literally calls out to be more. It, it continually gives voice to growth. And that is, I think, what's true in nature. When you look at nature, nature's been my biggest teacher in my life. Everything in nature seeks expression. It seeks to grow. It seeks to be more of what it is naturally designed to be. You know, an acorn desires to be that full oak tree. The same is true with businesses. Business, <clears throat> and you'll hear me say this a lot, is the most pervasive force on the planet. There is nothing on, the, on, on, on this planet that escapes the touch of business. And that's both good news and bad news. And it becomes very good news when business is really looking to express what it really came to the table to be. Yeah, and, that, and that's true for any business. Uh, it goes sideways when the purpose of the business becomes the business itself and not delivering on what the mission is. The soul gets covered. So what we talk about in this podcast is what does it take, what does it mean, and how does it show up to actually express the soul of the business, a journey to the soul of the business. And um, I think you're going to enjoy this show. I've got somebody fascinating for you to uh, you know, kind of play with today, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Scott Miller has been with uh, Franklin Covey for about 23 years, and he's an executive vice president of thought leadership. And that's an interesting title that I want to explore with him you know, as we get into this. He's also got a couple of really good books out. Uh, and I'm going to have him speak to the one that just dropped. It's uh, now number three on the Wall Street Journal list. Um, but the one that I, you know, caught my attention initially was Management Mess, Leadership I'm sorry, management mess to leadership success. 30 challenges to becoming the leader you would follow. That was an Amazon bestseller and continues to be an Amazon bestseller. And Scott's fascinating. He'd been at Disney for a while, a Disney development company. And where he's at right now in his life is making a big difference. Franklin Covey, those of you that know this, and know this about the company, it's been around a while. Stephen Covey, you know, yeah. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I mean, all of that, and you know, millions of people impacted by that. And the fact that you know, uh, Scott has been with the company for 23 years here says something about his, uh, his effectiveness. <laughs> so we'll just start with that. And um, Scott, welcome to the show. Blaine, thank you for the platform. Uh, you, can you believe that Dr. Covey's book is now in its 30th year and has sold 30 million copies? It's an I honor know. to be associated with his brand. He kind of raised me from a pup and could not be more humble and privileged to be associated with, with his thinking and some of his leadership um, thoughts. I absolutely concur. I had the great privilege of meeting him while he was still alive. And, uh, and, and he was delightful. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah. In the book, when I first got my hands on that book, uh, it was an epiphany uh, in, in many ways. You know, he codified for me what some of the things were that I needed to be paying attention to um, that would, would and did enable me to be far more successful than what I was currently being way back then. Not so, just you, right? Millions. Oh, millions. Millions. Well too. Yeah. 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 So, um, 
Yeah, your focus on leadership, and I, I mentioned this in the preamble here, um, Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at the Franklin Covey Institute. So what what is that entail for you, and how does that actually you know, mesh with what we're talking about here? You know, the yeah, so no, th thanks for the tee-up. You know, I, I've been in the firm, like I said, for, you said, for almost 24 years, spent the first decade in sales, sales management, sales leadership, spent the last year as the chief, last 10 years as the chief marketing officer. So for a decade, I was responsible for our brand, brand development, and kind of re, re, really re-envisioning how the next generation of leaders sees our company as being a relevant partner. About a year ago, I stepped away from being the chief marketing officer, a decade's a long time, and assumed this new role called uh, thought leadership. You know, people always ask me, what is it like to be a thought leader? Well, you can't call yourself a thought leader. It's like calling yourself smart. Someone else has to call you a thought leader. So yeah. I don't ever claim to be a thought leader. What, you know, people ask me all the time, what is a thought leader? You know, I'll tell you, I think it's the new public relations. I, I think it's how individuals and organizations articulate their point of view, right? We've, we've, we've researched this, we've studied this, and here's our opinion, here's our expertise. So my job is to raise up and disseminate the thoughts of our leaders in the company, be it your good friend, Stephen M. R. Covey, Dr. Covey's eldest son, who wrote the book, The Speed of Trust. That book has sold two million copies. Or Chris McChesney, who's the lead author of The Four Disciplines of Execution. They go on and on. So my job is to kind of be their agent, their publicist, and to make sure that their, their columns and articles and the keynotes are out resonating with the world. Well, it just so happens that I decided to, to write a book, and it did so well that some people kind of put me in that same pantheon. I think they were naive putting me there. But, you know, after 23 years as a formal leader, I've learned a lot myself around how difficult leadership is. In, in my book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, kind of shook the industry the last four or five months because it's not like a lot of these academic leadership books that are aspirational and they're um, a little bit altruistic. My book is, nope, leadership's hard. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, leadership is <clears throat> the wrong calling. Not everybody should be a leader of people. So I really kind of call out through my own messes, you know, as a supposed expert in a leadership firm, it's been really hard for me. And yeah. not everybody should be a leader of people. In fact, I kind of open the book and talk about how too often people are lured into a leadership position. They're not led. They, they go in for the wrong reasons, the wrong aspirations, and they find themselves kind of stuck. And so this book is a, not a confessional blame, but it's really a, a raw, vulnerable look at how tough leadership is, even for someone who's an officer in a leadership company writing and practicing it for, you know, 20, almost 25 years now. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you uh, talked about, you know, the, the, the fit for a leader. Not everybody yeah. is the fit. Um, we played with this a lot in, uh, in, in my you know, preliminary conversation with, with you before we launched uh, the podcast here, um, <clears throat> I talked a little bit about my background being specifically around leadership development. And one of the things that I do know for a fact is that, and by definition, everybody is a leader, but not everybody is effective in that role. And I say that for this reason. Uh, leaders cause movement. I mean, that's what a leader does at the end of the day. You know, you, t you strip away all of the artifacts, you know, you know, characteristics and traits and that stuff. Leaders cause movement. Um, but not all that movement is elegant and not all that movement is effective. 
And so when we're talking about leadership development, one of the things I pay particular attention to is the question of, is it elegant? Is it effective? And by elegant, I mean uh, no unintended consequences. And you know, the, the kinds of folks that you may you know, be referencing here that have difficulty in the role, um, in my experience, rely or you know, <clears throat> either too much or too little on a skill set that is organized around co-creating coordinated movement, which is my definition for leadership, mm. co-creating coordinated movement. And if I can't do that well, if I'm not predisposed to it, if I don't want to learn how to do that, yeah, I yeah, I'm going to be uh, a poor fit in a leadership role. I still, yeah. I'm still gonna, I'm still going to be causing movement. Yeah, but I might want to look at where I'm moving. Can uh, I build on that? Movement. Yeah, I'll build on that too. I think I agree with you. I think everybody has leadership capability inside of them. Mm -hmm. I fundamentally do not believe that everybody should be a leader of people. Yeah. I think you can lead a project, lead an initiative, but I but I believe passionately, and I'm kind of un unequivocal on this is that too often people are promoted to be leaders of people for the wrong reasons. Yeah. They were the best dental hygienist or the most efficient digital designer or the top salesperson. Mm -hmm. And rarely do those competencies that make you the best in any job make you the best leader of people. In fact, they're often the opposite. Think about what makes the best salesperson, right? The person usually is very competitive. They like to win. They like to be on the top of the scoreboard. They like to beat their colleagues to the top. Those are actually good skills to have for a salesperson. They're horrible skills to have as a leader of other salespeople. Exactly. You've got to make a paradigm shift. You know, once you move into a leadership position of people, you have to realize that the skills that got you here are not the same skills that you need to lead people. You have to make a fundamental mind shift yep. that you're not responsible now just for your own results. You're responsible for getting work done with and through other people. Yeah. It requires a level of maturity and interdependence, right? And relationship management that a lot of people don't want to learn. Yeah. And so yeah. everyone should not be a leader of people. It oftentimes requires becoming a, a, a learner again, a more, oh. more precisely a beginner again. You it know. takes a level of vulnerability and humility. Yep. That I, what I have also found and Blaine, you and I are probably more aligned than maybe some of our definitions. I have found that I found I found a lot over the years. I found that I probably should not have been a leader of people. That I think I've grown into it. But you know, I'm fairly impulsive. I'm a little bit impetuous. I too often say what's on my mind and should have be a little more deliberate. And I'm very courageous and need to exercise more consideration. To quote Dr. Covey, I have a very efficient mindset. Mm -hmm. I don't have a very effective mindset and you can be efficient with things and processes and meetings and, you know, lots of part of your life. But as a leader, you got to slow down and recognize that relationships are everything to being a great leader. And that requires you to have an effectiveness mindset and not an efficient mindset. So I really struggle with it. And I think too often people become leaders, whether they're entrepreneurs or business owners or founders, or they buy a business or they're promoted they, they, they don't fully understand what does leading people mean? Yeah. What are the types of skills that made you a great upstart entrepreneur may not be the same skills that now you have to mature into when you've got 50 people or 100 people. In many cases, I think entrepreneurs stay the CEO for too long. Oh, absolutely. They might, 
they might need to be the chairman, right? Or they might need to be the EVP of business development or something. So, it, you know, to Marshall Goldsmith's point, what got you here won't get you there. And you got to change your mindset, your skill set, your behaviors if you're going to mature into a leadership role of people. Yeah, yeah, Scott, yeah, absolutely true. And, and the, you know, the point that you made about relationship, spot on. That's all an organization is. It is. A collection it is. of folks that are in relationship. That's it. And, and if those relationships are working well, you got a pretty good shot at being successful. Blaine, I think there's an adage that's actually not true. You kind of the new cliche is that people are an organization's most valuable asset. It's <laughs> not true. It's not true. Yeah. It is the relationships between those people that is your most valuable asset. Because if Blaine is genius and Scott's a genius, but if they can't get along, collaborate, forgive each other, yeah. pre-forgive each other and compliment our skill sets, the company doesn't need you. Because yeah. if you can't work together, I, I don't have need for two geniuses, right? So a leader's job is to model, coach, mentor, and, and, and um, build that cultural formula where people can work together. There's also this misnomer that leaders create engagement. Business owners, leaders, you don't create engagement. You create the conditions for other people to choose their own level of engagement, high or low. Your job is to build culture as a leader, and that is just as important as managing the P&L or your supply chain or cost of goods or EBITDA or, or you know, inventory controls. Culture is something that people quit or they stay. Yeah, Peter Drucker, yeah, culture will eat strategy True. for lunch, he said. Right. Mark right. Benioff. Yeah, it's a, ni it's a nice quote. Yeah. It sometimes feels a little bit intangible, but as a leader, it is your top job. Yeah. It is absolutely the top job. Yeah, yeah I wrote a, you know, a small ebook um, about that exact thing. The key to yeah. employee engagement is culture. It is, is, is absolutely spot on. What, what, what's it called? I'd, I'd love to read it. What, what's it called? Uh, I'll get you a copy of it. It's okay, called, please. Um, yeah, <laughs> I haven't looked at it for a while. Uh, soul of Business, uh, Key to Employee Engagement. I love it. The Soul of Business. Yeah. Okay, soul great. Soul of Business. And the, 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 one of the things about relationship that I find fascinating is that um, it's not just the interpersonal relationships. You know, my relationship with you, if that's working well, we're going to be probably pretty happy campers in the, in, 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 in the, the, the cubicle together. But I've also got a relationship with the company's vision. I've got a relationship with the uh, mm. company's mission. I've got a relationship with the values. I've got a relationship with my chair, for Christ's sakes. And if these relationships aren't working well, I'm going to be unhappy to a degree. And then I start being nonproductive. I start questioning. My, my attention goes somewhere else. And where my attention goes, my energy also follows. So as a leader, one of the things that I want to pay particular attention to is where's the attention? being placed and that's a relationship question it, it is it is what, what yeah you, you you talk about you know uh and i love this um there's a there's a uh, uh inflection point with every company i have ever worked with and i've yeah i've been in front of over three hundred thousand people in businesses you know talking about this in some way shape or form the business grows it's got a mission it started off with an idea that got people really excited. They wanted to deliver on this idea. There was a value proposition. And so a business got constructed to deliver. And 
get over the financing hump and all of a sudden we are actually now making money. I got some systems in place and we're actually doing fairly well. And this is the point where the entrepreneur, and uh, this is you know a large part of some of the difficulty here, we start looking at the business as the mechanism, uh, which is justifiable. It's the mechanism for delivery of uh, the mission. But very suddenly, something begins to happen. Conversations in the boardroom, conversations on the floor begin to organize around, are we hitting our numbers or not? The conversations and the decisions are made in service of the business's effectiveness not in the effectiveness of delivering on the mission. And it's so subtle, but it is something that happens in my experience to every company at some point in time. And unless the leaders are paying attention, because it's my relationship with the mission that needs to be on the forefront, probably a 51-49 mix. It's not gonna be you know, weighted real heavily on one side or the other, because I, I need a viable, you know, viable business. What's been your experience? I mean, 23 years, 24 years almost, quarter of a decade, or quarter of a century uh, coming up uh, with Franklin Covey. You've had some experience where that inflection point got sure. surfaced. Sure. And how, yeah. how, how would you and how did the organization handle that from a leadership perspective and from a soul of business perspective? Uh, yeah, I, every organization faces this transition. Most leaders know it's going to happen, but don't tend to see it until they're on the other side and then have to kind of claw it back. Because mm -hmm. uh, if, you know, if you're a beast to the growth of your organization or your investors or if you're a public company, you can't help but begin to spend your time on you know, the growth model as opposed to perhaps the soul or the mission of your organization. I think you hit a point that is so um, – so valuable for entrepreneurs and leaders of any size business to be really kind of watching out for when they're headed into that danger zone. And at Franklin Covey, we hit it as well, right? I mean, we became a public company, which fundamentally changed our metrics, our mindsets, our lead and lag indicators, the things we scoreboard, uh, you know, our wildly important goals, or, you know, as Jim Collins calls them, your BHAGs, your big, yeah. hairy, audacious goals. And one of Franklin Covey's three wildly important goals every year is how are we fulfilling our mission? Our, you know, our mission is to enable greatness in people and organizations everywhere. We are a very mission-driven organization. At the same time, we're a public company. And, you know, we have shareholders, institutional, individual. I'm one of them. Our stock's gone from $6 to $38 in the last four or five years. That didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen with just a focus on mission or just to focus on margin or growth. It's a constant tension. It's a healthy tension. Mm -hmm. So I think, I, I don't have a magic bullet. I think it's just hyper-awareness in the C-suite yeah. of are you connecting every employee to the why behind the what? It sounds so cliche-ish, but you know what? We sit in a town hall, and the CEO will talk, and we have a very competent, highly, high-character-focused CEO, a big fan, Bob Whitman. I report to him, have for a long time. And, you know, a, a speech a year is not enough to have the people over in collections or supply chain or the client service coordinators or the calling team. You know, they don't understand deeply the organization. They're, 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 they're inspired and they're uh, yearning, but you kind of can't overconnect. The, yeah. the higher you are up in the letterhead, the higher you are up in the organization, 
the more disconnected you are from the real work being done. And the more you're lied to, the more the emperor has no clothes, the more you think everything is going fine, or the more you take it as a personal affront when someone complains about something. Disconnect your ego from you know, the mission and the culture. Get back out there. Constantly explain how is the person in customer service? How is the person at the retail store? How is the person in accounts receivables helping to drive and fulfill the mission? Because you're thinking about it. And talking about it in the C-suite for 10 hours a day means you're not talking about it out amongst mm -hmm. the organization. Exactly. So you got to find some ways to walk around. Don't just walk in the back door, take the private elevator. Don't just have lunch in your office. I see it way too often, even in our company. You know, in the C-suite, we meet from eight to six all day long. Take two bathroom breaks, you know, order in lunch and no. You know what? <laughs> it's walk around the building, yeah. connect with people. And it sounds, you know, maybe very 80s-ish or such, but it's never been more important as you're faced with that inflection point of growing to not ensconce yourself with your C-suite or your executive team or your management team, but be connected to your, your group and constantly, continually be talking about the why behind the what and show how you're concerned about the mission. Ask people how they're able to live it and such. It's, it's, it is an ounce of provision. Ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, you know the, the whole notion of uh, all an organization is is a relationship is, is, for me, fundamental. If I understand that, it opens up some very interesting things. One thing that it opens up that you were just talking about is that conversation is the lifeblood of healthy relationship. Yeah. And if conversations are not continuous and they're not continual, then there's two you know, continual and continuous about the things that are relevant. You know, the, the, the body begins to atrophy. And so the point that you're making about move your conversations out of the C-suite, move them out of the meetings and have them in the organization. The conversations are the lifeblood and the why behind the what there's a, there's a, there's a piece that I've stumbled on years ago that I think is really useful here. It's a, it's a question that kind of breaks the, uh, uh, the danger, breaks what happens because people hear the why behind the what and they kind of go, yeah, 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 whatever. It's, it's, it's asking the question for the sake of what? For the sake of what? There's a why here, for the sake of what? What does it make possible that we wouldn't get yeah. anywhere else? And that for the sake of what question interrupts the patterned way that people are thinking and behaving and it causes them to, you know, literally to pause for just a moment. What do you mean for the sake of what? Well, that's a great question. What do you, you know, what do you think I mean by that? How would you answer that for yourself? What are we doing that we couldn't do anywhere else? What do you get out of this that you couldn't get anywhere else if we're successful? That starts to make it personal. And far too often, you know, the vision is up on the, uh, the wall of the company and it's uh, artwork. It, it doesn't, yeah. it's not a living document. Beautifully what said, yeah. You know, the Do, Dr. Dr. Covey said, Blaine, Dr. Covey said, no involvement, no commitment. Absolutely. And, and some of the best organizations I've worked with, and I, I speak like you around the nation, you know, three, four times a week keynoting. It's a common theme that I see in organizations that are growing where the CEO, the founder, the company owner is connected to the mission. They do something very similar. And it's the CEO usually has a monthly lunch or a monthly breakfast, eight, 10, 12 people every month, okay. Thursdays, and they invite, you know, an oscillating group at all levels of the company to come in yep. 90 minutes, 
ask questions, talk, learn about what's going on, where we've been, where we're going. People could be new, not have the lineage, not know some of the struggles we've been through, not know why we're doing this, and can give you insight because, you know, executives lie to the CEO all the time because there's fear. Really? No, there's fear. Oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> how often do I tell the CEO the truth? Probably too much, and it probably gets me in trouble, right? Of course, the truth is my truth, but the CEO needs to hear from the receptionist, you know, why, why this is going on or what the calls are. And I think it's super helpful to get the leader, the owner, the founder out in front of the employees and understand, you know, when you, when you, when you mention our brand to your in-laws at Thanksgiving, what do they say? Yeah. What does the real customer think we're about? What do you think of the new logo? What do you think of that new product in the store? What do you think of our competition? Because the higher up you are in an organization, you build this, 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 this um, placenta. It's an odd metaphor, but it's hard to break through the truth. And most CEOs say they want to hear the truth, but in too many cultures, they've built sycophants around them. Yep. where everyone's trying to keep their stock options and keep their job and not rock the boat and you only share half the truth. The receptionist, oh, he'll share the truth. The grounds crew person, oh, he'll share the truth, right? Yep. They don't have a whole lot to lose. Um, it's a great best practice. It is. It's a, the, my experience at senior levels is that people look for answers. I mean, they, want, they, they take comfort in having an answer. Yeah, tell me the answer to this. Okay. Is, are we doing it right? Yeah, you're doing it right. So the answer is the, the affirmation and the, uh, the reinforcement of the assumption, are we doing it right? Far better I am served by asking questions and uh, you know, letting people begin to riff on the questions. Not, not uh, yes, no questions, but kind of how are we doing questions? And yeah, well, what's it like to work here? What's it's a like great. What's it like to work in the company, right? Um, yeah. Tell me about the worst boss you ever had here. Don't mention her or his name. What was he and she being allowed to do by their leader? That you, I mean, there's questions like that that are very safe that you'll learn a lot. Oh, absolutely. From people, yeah. Yeah, and and, and that you know kind of kind of brings us full circle back to yeah. You know, the, the vulnerability that's required as a leader to do that. Not everybody is going to yeah. be uh, yeah, the, disposed, I guess would be the word I'd use yeah. charitably. Disposed yeah. to doing that. Can I riff yeah. on that? Pardon? Do you, can, I, can I riff a little bit on that? Please. Sorry, I think it's the, it's the premise of my book, Management Mess, mm -hmm. is that vulnerability is a leadership competency. Uh, just like a communication skill or listening or business acumen or a foreign language. When as a leader, you can show the vulnerability to admit your messes. It creates a culture where other people can admit their fears and they can take some more calibrated risks and people can actually grow the business. If the, if the business leader, unit leader, division leader, platform leader, CEO, is projecting a profile of they're the genius, they're the smartest, they have all the answers. You're going to create this organization that stifles everybody's creativity. No one wants to work for the smartest person in the room. My dear friend Liz Wiseman wrote a book called Multipliers. I think it is one of the best leadership books written in the last decade. She came from Oracle, and the premise of the book is that multiplying leaders are not the geniuses. They're the genius makers of others. And that they have the humility and they have the confidence and the vulnerability to step back 
and let other people be the genius in the room. That took me 25 years too long to learn because I learned, and, I, and I'm an officer in a public company. I learned that I hired smart people, but Blaine, I hired people who I thought weren't smarter than me, mm. just smart enough, but that would not eclipse me because my, my, my value was being the smartest CMO in the room. And I confused that it was my responsibility to own the results with my responsibility to make all the decisions and be the smartest person in the room. And I'm embarrassed to admit, at age 50, my job is to hire people smarter than me mm -hmm. that have expertise on SEO and marketing automation and Google Analytics and, so, and things that are smart. My job is to build a culture where they can thrive and they choose to stay and feel valued not to be the smartest person in the room. And I think too often, way too often, entrepreneurs, leaders, business owners, CEOs still think their value is to be the smartest person in the room. No, you're stifling. No one wants to work for you. Absolutely. You know, an old mentor of mine years ago said uh, that we connect through vulnerability and we disconnect through certainty. And... Mm. That's, I think, uh, a great place to bring this in for a landing uh, because it, 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 we are uh, all subject to relationship effectiveness. And I say subject to it. If, if, if our relationships are working well, we're going to be um, spot on. The, uh, my, my last book, Compassionate Capitalism, was predicated on vulnerability being the gateway to compassion. And compassion is the way that uh, the world is actually constructed to work. You know. You're wise. You want to have a podcast. This I is good stuff. This is good stuff. <laughs> uh, Scott, I want to thank you. Uh, how can people get more information about what you're up to right now? You you got some fascinating things yeah. going on. So I'd well, like to you. Uh, yeah, have them know what that is because I'm, I'm intrigued. Well, I, I appreciate the platform. My first book is Management Mess to Leadership Success. You can visit managementmess.com. And from there, you can either connect to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of that. I'm the co-author of a book that just landed last week called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. That debuted in the Wall Street Journalist last week at number three. We're honored about the response. You can visit the world's largest web domain um, or longest, Everyone Deserves Deserves a great manager.com, or you can visit franklincovey.com and you can find those books and me and other great thought leaders there as well. Great. Uh, that's wonderful. Folks, take advantage of that. Uh, you will not be disappointed. It's really good stuff. Uh, guest today, Scott Miller, uh, Executive Vice President, Thought Leader of uh, Franklin Covey uh, Organization. Scott, thank you very much. It's been great having you on, and I'd, I'd love to have you come back again. I would be honored. Thank you, Blaine. Appreciate it. You bet. You take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.